Where has this been all my life? How come nobody ever taught me how to handle a conflict productively? How come nobody ever taught me that actually conflict can build an even stronger relationship? How come nobody ever told me more about how to learn about myself? You have a choice to take a risk and become better known. You have a choice to get more curious. You have a choice about receiving a piece of feedback as a gift and a data with which you can make more choices. You have a choice about whether or not you want to keep learning and growing. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Today's conversation is all about relationships. And as you may have heard me say before, the quality of our relationships in many ways determines the quality of our lives. Yes, it feels good to have close, nourishing relationships, but it's so much more than just feeling good. Good quality relationships help us with our physical health, our mental health, and our happiness. So on today's show, I am delighted to welcome two fantastic guests who are without question experts on how we can all build exceptional relationships. David Bradford and Carol Robin have taught interpersonal skills to MBA students at the prestigious Stanford University for a combined 75 years in their legendary course, officially called Interpersonal Dynamics, but affectionately known to the students as touchy-feely. They've also coached and consulted with thousands of executives all over the globe, and now they've brought their invaluable lessons to all of us in their fabulous book, Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. Now we start off our conversation defining what an exceptional relationship actually is and why it's so important for us to have them in our lives. We talk about their concepts of being over the net, which is a brilliant tool that you can use in all your interactions with others to make sure that you're only ever owning your reality, not telling other people about how they're feeling or what they're doing wrong. And I have to say, if all you do is listen to this conversation and understand and then practice this concept of being over the net, I am confident that many of the relationships in your life will improve immeasurably. It really is that powerful. We also talk about the risk involved in raising issues in a relationship and how we might prefer to avoid confrontation. But while there's a risk in expressing your feelings, there's also a big cost to silence. In fact, David and Carol share a powerful example of a major setback in their own friendship and how they managed to successfully overcome it. Carol and David cover so much ground in this week's conversation, including their thoughts on parent-child relationships, friendships that are no longer nourishing, and how we can improve our digital interactions. Their world-famous course may be taught around leadership, but their wisdom is relevant to each and every single one of us. I thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation. I've already started to put into practice some of the tools that I've learned from them. I really think you are going to enjoy listening. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to one of today's sponsors, 
who are essential in order for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. Athletic Greens are sponsoring today's show. Now, nutrition is really important for all aspects of our health. Yes, it matters for our physical health, but it also matters for our mental and emotional health. You see, when we feed ourselves the right nutrients, our brain functions better. We've got more energy. We've got more focus. You know, we can sleep better. And of course, today's show is all about building exceptional relationships. I believe that having the right nutrition means that you are going to be functioning at your best, which allows you to bring your best self to all aspects of your life, including your relationships. Now, Athletic Greens make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I have ever come across. It contains vitamins, minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and I myself take it regularly. Of course, in an ideal world, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But the truth is, as I've seen time and time again with many of my patients, that a lot of us struggle to consistently do that. And that is why I am a big fan of Athletic Greens. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a new special offer where you get 10 free travel packs with your subscription. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. And now, what I thought was an exceptional conversation with two exceptional people, David Bradford and Carol Robin. How would you define an exceptional relationship and why should we be striving to have more of them in our lives? Well, let me, let me answer the first part. We, um, as, as we observed this, we saw six uh, core competencies. One was, to what extent can I be myself? Uh, not spin an image, not to pretend to be something else. Second, to what extent could I build conditions where you can be more yourself, where we can uh, be uh, more human beings with each other? Third, uh, a sort of a notion that if I do share myself and tell you personal things, you won't use it against me and I won't use your in information against you. Fourth, can we be honest with each other? Uh, can we tell the truth and not have to um, read between the lines? Uh, fifth, um, we're going to disagree, and that's okay. And can we raise it and uh, not shove it under the rug? And can we resolve it in a way that also furthers, strengthens the relationship? And finally, can we be committed to each other's growth and maybe raise the difficult issues because we believe the other, we care for the other, and we believe the other can be even better than they are? And I, I'll, I'll pick up on the why. Um, but, and before I go there, I want to just underscore that relationships exist on a continuum. And at one end of the continuum is contact, not, no real connection. At the other end of the continuum is this notion of exceptional that David just described. And on your way to exceptional, 
along all these dimensions, as you develop more of them, you actually develop a more robust functional relationship. So the entire world would be better off if we could move the needle along the continuum so that way more relationships would be functional and robust and uh, and healthier. And that, that applies to families and communities and teams and organizations. The, the idea, what we noticed or what we came to understand through the course was that we're not advocating you try to turn every relationship in your life into exceptional. That would both be exhausting and impossible. Uh, on the other hand, shouldn't you have the capacity to move a, at least some of your relationships to that level if you want to, especially if you both want to? And so, you know, you might have one person like that in your life. Maybe you, if you're lucky, by the way, because a lot of people don't have any. Uh, but you might want to have, you know, uh, a handful, three, four, five. And so the book actually is meant to both expand your capacity to create much better relationships with everybody and take a few of those to this whole different level. It's interesting that this course that you both taught for many, many years at Stanford Business School it strikes me that although the course was taught around leadership to some really highly bright, highly academic students at Stanford, that the principles really apply to each and every single one of us in work, in family, in love relationships, in work relationships, whatever they are. And, and, and David, when you were reading out those six um, hallmarks of exceptional relationships, what I was struck by is number three was you trust that self-disclosures will not be used against you. Number four, you can be honest with each other. Number five, you deal with conflict productively. Now, if I think about one of the most important relationships to many people, it's their partner or their their, you know, who they are married to. And mm -hmm. I know many marriages, both personally, but also in my 20 years as a doctor, when I, when I see patients complaining about their relationships and the impact it's having on their health, number three and number five are often not there. You trust that self-disclosures will not be used against you mm -hmm. and you deal with conflict productively. So it's very striking for me at the start of this conversation, our marriages or some of our marriages, some of our love relationships may not yet have every component of an exceptional relationship. And I think that uh, that's sad. And I think one of the reasons is to, to build a relationship, to build a sort of robust relationship that Carol talked about, you often have to raise the issues that could risk it. And I've been married 56 years, and there have been many times where I've said to myself, oh, do I really want to raise this? And I'm not saying one should raise everything but we often err on the side of being too cautious. And I think that uh, what I've usually found is that when I take the risk of raising it with the intention not to bludgeon the other person, not to attack them, but because I'm hurting and I want something more, uh, usually the risk works out. Not, not to be trite, of course, but no risk, no reward. Um, and, you know, to your point, uh, Rangan, we get 
both David and I get calls and emails from students, not, not just the, oh, you know, I got promoted to CEO because of what I learned from you. We get, I'm pretty sure your course just saved my marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, or my, you know, what I learned from you just helped me reconcile my relationship with my brother who I hadn't talked to for a year. That's why it's so powerful. And that's why it's become such a legend. So let's go back to the start, because I think the origin story here is well worth diving into. Um, so my understanding from the research I've done is that, David, you started running this course around 45 years ago. And then, Carol, you joined about 25 years ago. So feel free to fact check that if I'm slightly out of the loop. But that's certainly what I've read when, when doing my research. So that's a long time, 45 years of running this. So, so David, at the start, what was your incentive to do this? Were there, you know, were there relationship um, conflicts you were having in your own life that led you down this path? You know, what was behind setting up this course? And actually, were they receptive at Stanford to a course like this all the way back then? Well, the um it was really 55 years ago, that's a minor point. Uh, and I didn't start it, to be honest. Another professor started and uh, didn't get tenure, and I was hired to teach the course. Yes, to, to speak to your last point, the um, school was a little ambivalent about it, but because it started to get such positive student response, uh, the school said, well, we're not sure we fully understand it, but the students love it, so we're going to do it. I think my motivation is I've always been concerned with relationships, and actually the methodology of this course was one I was uh, I knew before uh, coming to Stanford. It, it just made such a difference to me personally when I didn't have to pretend, when I could have that relationship. And I'm sure you know the feeling when you start to talk and you go, Phew, you know, I can I can take off some of my armor, some of my protection, protective armor. And then I was also consulting in organizations, and I was seeing the waste when people avoided issues, talked around things, or attacked each other unproductively. So I, I think I was I was personally thirsty for this, wanting it and loving it when I had it, and deeply gratified when I saw the students respond to it. Carol, you've also been really intrigued with this. This has been central to your life, too. I, yeah, I, I have, a, I have a, a, a slightly different and much more circuitous story because, of course, I've had many careers. Unlike David, who, who spent his life in academia, I had like five careers before I came to Stanford. Um, and, but I remember vividly, I was thinking about this uh, last night, in fact, or I'm going to in anticipation of this, of this call, I was thinking about my first T group, the T standing for training, not therapy, just for the record for all the people listening. And, uh, and my first T group was 25 years ago. And I remember vividly this experience of finding an unending source of strength in a modality that helped me learn more about who I was and how to connect with other people. It was, it was, it was literally life-changing in the moment. It's like, oh, and I've always been fascinated by people. And even though I've had lots of different careers, the through line is always my fascination with people. 
And this was a whole new window that opened up for me. And I thought, I mean, at the, I had I had been a, a manager. I'd run $50 million business. I'd been an executive recruiter. I'd been a consultant. And suddenly I was like, oh, wait, this, whatever is happening right here, this is what, what I want to dedicate the rest of my life to. I want to help people have the experience that not only I just had, but I just saw all the people in this room have. And that's what brought me to David's door. The One of the members of my dissertation committee had known David's father actually very well, and David. Uh, and he said to me, you know, you should go meet David Bradford over there at Stanford. They've got this course that's like becoming more and more popular, and I think they need more people to teach it. So go meet David Bradford. And so I walked into David Bradford's office and said, hi. <laughs> the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. And the more, the more I got involved in it, the more it became clear to me that for me, this was my life's calling. I was put on this planet to bring this to as many people as I possibly can. You said a couple of really interesting things there. For me, Carol, you said... It helps you to get to know yourself better and also how to connect with others. And that is something I'm, I really want to dive deep with you both during this conversation because, you know, for me, what is my interest here? Well, I'm a human being, so I would like, you know, a, a better ability to interact with my children, with my wife, with my work colleagues. So that, there's that personal desire to improve my skills and frankly, skills I don't think I was ever taught. And we can maybe talk about that later. Um, but there's also a professional interest. And, you know, my second book on stress, I wrote about this, a quarter of the book on relationships and said that, you know, the number one factor in having a long, healthy and happy life is the quality of your relationships. So, the, you know, having close nourishing relationships helps us reduce stress in our life. But at the same time, it works the other way. Having too much stress in our life and being too busy and rushing around all the time can sometimes make it harder to have those close, nourishing, exceptional relationships, right? So it kind of works both ways. So I've, I've, I've got a deep personal and professional interest here. I'm just really fascinated as to, you know, why has it proved so popular, right? You've got very able students at Stanford. You know, they're probably not going to Stanford, at least initially, to learn about relationships, to learn about how to interact with others. They're probably straight A students who are like, okay, I'm going to learn the skills, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to, you know, go and crush it when I start working. So why is it proved so popular? I've seen some stats that it's at 85% of mm -hmm. what is it can you can you tell me what that status and then please explain to me why it's proven such a hit with the students year after year well first i want to say that students don't go get mbas to learn how to have better relationships but a lot of them choose stanford instead of other very famous very well-known business schools because of this course I've had many, many students tell me they chose Stanford over that other very well-known business school in the East because <laughs> they knew that if they came to Stanford, they would emerge better human beings, not just better leaders, 
but better human beings. And it's all because of this course. So of course, by now, it's a legend, it's a flywheel. And so students come to, to choose Stanford for a reason. So most of them are going to take the course. Now, let some of the answer, and I'd love to hear what D David might want to add about this, but some of the answer to your question is that they have that a lot of that same experience I had in my first T group, which was, where has this been all my life? How come nobody ever taught me how to handle a conflict productively? How come nobody ever taught me that actually conflict can build an even stronger relationship? How come nobody ever told me more about how to learn about myself? So it's, it's the process of discovery that is so transformative uh, that, and all they have to do is have the experience and then they tell other students and then alums tell students who come, whatever you do, this is one class you should not miss, uh, even though it's an elective. And we would never turn it into a, uh, an, into a, a required class. Let me build on that. Uh, and, and what Carol is saying is, is it right, you're right, Rangan, that our students are bright, they've been straight A's and so on. But they also walk around with a notion that if I'm to be a leader, if I'm to be influential, if I'm to be popular, if I'm to be sexy, whatever it is, I have to pretend to be something that I'm not. And so much of the world holds that view. And what happens in this course over the 10 weeks is students take the risk of letting themselves be known, taking the risk of sharing parts of themselves. I think this is what Carol really experienced that first time, and we see it all the time, of saying something that might get me rejected, that might get me um, seen less of. And what they experience is that their peers say, now that I know you, the real you, you're much more influential. I'd want to file, follow you if you were a leader. Uh, so it's such, so personally validating because the other problem with an image is if in the short run the image works, it's further devaluing because it just confirms my fear that the real me won't work. Yeah. And, and that's such a destructive self-concept. And uh, so when you have these open relationships and I can say things, I can take the risk of being myself, not of sharing everything, but sharing things that are most relevant to our relationship, I get validated. And, and that is, is so important. Yeah, there there are so many things to pick up on there. I'm 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 sort of drawn to this quote that you both put in your wonderful book. We're so used to disguising ourselves to others that in the end we become disguised to ourselves. Yeah. It's so powerful because you see this all the time. I've experienced this myself. You you know, I, th I think we all have when we 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 try and be somebody who we're not. And after a while, you, you actually, you've forgotten actually, who am I really? Who, who, who am I when I strip away this kind of image that I've created in front of other people? Um, something I've shared on this podcast many times in the past is that this podcast has really helped me through these conversations, which mm. I hope, I hope some of them are exceptional conversations, but I really feel that it's helped me 
shed some of these images and think, well, if you know, it's too exhausting to yes. try mm-hmm. and portray an image of you. And, and I just think, well, you know what? I'm just going to be myself, warts and all, you know, for, for my strengths, my weaknesses, my insecurities. And it's so freeing. There's a freedom when you learn how to be yourself. That's what I, it's exactly what I was going to say is it's such a trap to have an image, as David says, especially one that works for a while, and then it becomes a trap. Now it's I really now I'm really afraid to let you in to what's really going on and who I really am, because, gosh, maybe maybe you like you like this spun image and you won't like the real me. And so there's something about creating an environment where people can test that. You know, that's a mental model. We, we have them throughout the book, right? Beliefs and assumptions. Oh, if I do this, this will happen. Well, it turns out that that there's no way to actually know that until you test it. Uh, and, and so developing environments or relationships, you don't even have to be in a team group. You could just develop a relationship with someone else where you get to test some of these beliefs and find out, Oh, wait, I've, I've always thought that if I showed you that I'm actually pretty insecure and scared half the time, I always thought you'd think less of me. It turns out you feel more drawn to me and you can relate to me better. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah, and what what you what is so one of my favorite things about the book is these case studies that sort of yeah. interweave. They come in and out throughout the book because, frankly, I challenge anyone to read the book and not not see parts of themselves in not just one in various different case studies. You see, oh yeah, I kind of I can kind of resonate with that a bit, a little bit here and that a little bit there. Um, let's let's get into some of these principles because I know you're a big believer that every relationship is unique and what works for one may not work for another, but there are these common principles that I think we can all learn. And I've got a few I'd love to go through, but if if the only thing people take from this conversation is understanding over the net, I think it would transform so many relationships, just that one principle. So I, I wonder if you could both share what is over the net and why is it so important? Okay. Um, to start with, we have to be a little complex, so bear with with us. There are actually in interaction three realities. One reality is my intention, uh, my motivation. So right now I uh, intend to be clear. I intend to be helpful. Second reality is my behavior. What do I do? What I say? My words? My tone? And the third is the impact on you. I don't know that third. And not only that, you don't know my first. Each of us have two of the three realities. To build a relationship, I often need to raise the issues that get in the way. It's called getting giving feedback. And in giving feedback, we do it in a way that tends not to be functional. We don't stick with our reality, our expertise. So the net concept is think of tennis. And there is a tennis net between the first and the second reality, between my intentions and my behavior. You can't play tennis. You can't play in the other person's backcourt. You got to stay in your court. But most feedback is over the net. So if I do something that bothers you and you say, well, David, you just want to dominate. Well, hell, you don't don't know what I want. You're over the net. Or uh, David... uh, you just want to show how smart you are. 
or David, you're just this. And so we say, stick with your reality. So I remember a time when a uh, person uh, said, uh, frowned and said, I, I'm bothered. And I said, uh, well, Donald, what's the matter? And he said, you interrupted me. Now, if he would have, and, and I said, yes. And he said, that's inconsiderate. Now, it would have been more accurate if he would have said, I feel put down. I feel not being honored or considered. That would have been really his reality. But he was telling me the impact of my behavior. And by doing that, I could then say, wow, wasn't my intention, but I guess I'm doing something that I don't want to do. So if we could stick with how does your behavior affect me? What does it make me feel like? How is it likely to impact my results and my way of interacting with you? We can say an awful lot more. But when we go over the net and make imputations of the other's motives and intentions, the other person feels defensive, resistant, and it hurts the relationship. So you're right. It's a key concept. And it's so hard for people not to make attributions of the other person's motives and intentions. And it's so damaging and so dangerous. Carol, before you respond, I just want to ask that because I think it's a great example, David, that I understand we've got these three, any given uh, interaction between two people, there's three realities. We can only know two of those three realities. The problems often arise and start to escalate in relationships when we try and pretend or make an assumption about that third reality that we know nothing of really. So you mentioned people get defensive when we start to make that, I guess, judgment. It is often yes. in, in many cases, in all cases. I want to, Carol, perhaps if you could just explain why should we not go onto the other side of the net? What is the problem when we do that? And maybe you could you know, bring up some other uh, common everyday examples sure. just to really bring this home for people. Sure. So you've got a colleague who's been late four times. You're becoming more and more irritated by that. So reality number two, the only reality known to both of you is that your colleague has arrived to meetings late. That's a fact. We know That's that. A, and by the way, reality number two is something that anybody watching a video would say, yeah, that's what happened. Okay? okay. That's the reality known to both of you. Now, let, I'll, I'll put it in my in first person. Now, I'm irritated. That's reality number three. The impact of you arriving consistently late on me is that I am irritated. But instead of saying wow, that's the third time that you've arrived late and I'm finding myself getting more and more irritated. And I'm telling you this because I don't think either one of us is well served by my being irritated. I say something like, well, obviously this meeting isn't very important to you. That is over the net. I have no idea whether the meeting is important to you or not. I am playing in your court and or I say something like, I feel that you don't care, which, by the way, doesn't have a single feeling word in it, which is why the vocabulary of feelings is such an important part of staying on your side of the net. I feel that you don't care is an attribution. You don't know whether I don't know whether you care or not, unless you say I don't care. 
So if I say, I feel that you don't care, or this is obviously not important to you, and you do care, and it is important to you, are you going to be more inclined to step to get into a problem-solving conversation with me? Or are you just going to defend yourself and say, of course I care? Or, you know, you know, that you know that you're not going to say, huh, you're irritated. I wonder if we should talk about this some more. Uh, you're going, you know, of course I care. And, uh, you know, you're wrong. You know, my, I, my, and so now we don't get anywhere. Yeah. So unless I learn to say, I feel irritated or I feel worried or I feel that's why the vocabulary of feelings is so important. It's all, it's in grammatically impossible in English to express a feeling and start with the words I feel like, or I feel that the minute you do that, you are in all probability going to be over the net because you're going to make an attribution or you're going to impute a, mo a motive. I feel like you don't care. I feel that it doesn't matter to you. I feel uh, like, uh, I, like I don't matter to any of those things are yeah. over the net. Yeah, it's, does, does that help answer yeah, your question? It, it really does. And, and the, the, the truth is that, that applies to all kinds of different relationships. But, but I would hazard a guess that many people in relationships are going to pause the podcast at that moment and send it to their other halves and say, hey, do you want to just have a little listen? Says, that would be my suspicion. Let's find out when the episode comes out, what people feed, what, what feedback there is. But Well, in fact, Rangan, you know, I think this example is in the book, but well, and people love this example so much because I talk about how my husband used to come home after a long day's work collapse on the chair and I'd come zooming around the corner having been home with two little kids desperate for adult interaction and I'd start talking yeah, 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 yeah. and the only thing he would do is you know in those days we still read newspapers so he would he would look at the newspaper and and he would say uh-huh uh-huh and and I would say you're not listening you're not listening is over the net I am not in his head I don't know whether he's listening or not so then of course he'd say yeah I am you went to that in nursery school, you're all worked up. And then I'd be even more enraged. It wasn't until I learned to say, honey, when I'm speaking and you make no eye contact and the only answer I get is a grunt, I don't feel heard. That's yeah. entirely on my side of the net. Carol, let me just pause you there because there was a key point there for me. So I get it. When you say you're not listening to me, you're on the other side of the net. Exactly. And th that can lead to all kinds of problems, defensiveness, you know, uh, a battle back saying, no, I was listening, you know, whatever. And that could spiral out of control. But then the next thing you said, I thought was really key. Even if you had said, I feel as though you're not listening, that's still over the net, isn't it? Because yes. it, and I think this is a really key points that I really want us to pause on because I had to reread the section a few times just to really lodge it in my head because I think sometimes that the progression from going oh that's over the net I'll say okay you know I'm not going to accuse him but I'm just going to say that I feel as if you're not listening yeah. but you would also what I mean why is that problematic as well it, because it's not a feeling <laughs> the trouble is in the English language we use I feel in two different ways which is what Carol's trying to say we use it for an opinion. 
And so if you could replace I feel with I think, and it still makes sense, that ain't a feeling. So uh, I feel, as Carol is saying, can be a feeling. I feel upset. I feel dismissed. Or it could be a thought. And you asked uh, Rengen about why this is important. Um, not only does it create defensiveness, but the other person can say, no, you're, you're wrong. And so you lose influence. But when you stick with your reality, it's indisputable. So when Carol said, I don't feel heard, I don't feel, or even I don't feel cared for, Andy couldn't say, no, you don't. He'd be over her net. So it's much more impactful as well as much more connecting because Carol is showing what's important to her. Feelings tell us what's important. And uh, the trouble is we tend to dismiss feelings because we so much uh, stress thoughts. Yeah. Now, That's why it, the course is called Touchy Feely by the students. <laughs> yeah. For a reason. What if someone doesn't have a wide emotional vocabulary? You know, it's not something that is particularly, I was going to say well-taught. I don't think it's taught full stop at school. Certainly it wasn't when I was at school. I don't see any evidence that that's changed, certainly with my kids, uh, when I hear about what they're learning at school. How can somebody, and, I, and I'm, I'm interested, um, you know, David, over these 45, 55 years, you know, have you seen a difference in what people's ability is putting this stuff into practice? You know, did, did students 40 years ago have a better, wider emotional vocabulary? Has technology changed things now? Whereas the students coming in now, I don't know, have got more limited, you know, what is going on there? And how can we help people who actually don't know how to describe their feelings? Yeah, there's been a, a dramatic change in the last 55 years. It was not unusual 55 years ago in these uh, uh, groups where we'd ask the student, well, what are you feeling? And they would say, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't even know if I'm feeling. So I think you're right. The whole educational system stresses rationality. Uh, you don't get an A in math by saying, I feel, <laughs> I feel like the right answer is 42, by the way, which is not a feeling. Um, <laughs> so you, <laughs> our educational system, I think appropriately stresses rationality. That doesn't mean it also can't bring in feelings. And I think at least in the U.S., in some of the primary and even secondary schools, there is a little bit more of that. So we've seen a change with people more in touch with their feelings, not as much as they should be. Now, I think part of that has been helped because of the seminal work that uh, Daniel Goldman did on emotional yeah. intelligence, which uh, showed the central role in being an effective leader as well as an effective person was being in touch with feelings. But we, we make a short copy of that vocabulary of feelings that Carol was talking, talking about, and we give it to students. And often in their interaction, they'll have this piece of paper on their lap and somebody will say, well, what are you feeling, Sam? And Sam will look down and say, I am feeling and has to find it. And in this process of stressing what you're feeling, they get more and more in touch with it. But you're right. We all could, um, could do a much better job. Now, 
we may not in the moment know it. Carol and I have been teaching this for decades. And there are times in our interactions, particularly when we're bothered, when we don't know immediately. And we say, hey, wait a minute. I need a moment to tune in. So it's hard. It's challenging. And I think people are getting better and need to be much better. Carol, why don't you talk about the two antennae? I think that really speaks here. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that one of the one of the things we talk about is in the book and with our students is is to think in terms of two antenna, one which is wired to pick up signals on what's going on for me. Uh, that might be called an intrapersonal antenna, and the other one that's wired to try to pick up signals on what might be going on for you. And part of this work and part of the skills and competencies here, it helps you tune into even more subtle signals on both antenna. And if we go all the way back to the beginning when I talked about what I learned about myself and continue to learn in, in all this work is how certain feelings are really, are much harder for me to access. And then, of course, that takes me into an exploration of what's that about? How come anger is so much harder for me to even allow myself to feel than sadness? And that's me. Yours might have a whole different construct. And I think it was because, uh, I mean, in my case, I never saw anger expressed in a way that looked productive. And it was scary. And so rather than learn how to express anger, I learned to suppress it. Hmm. That does not really do me any good and it doesn't anybody do anybody I'm interacting with any good. So this work has helped me. I mean, of course, there's also therapy, but let's just set that one aside. It's just been uh, liberating. We're back to liberating to allow myself to feel angry, to allow myself to express anger connecting in an odd kind of way because it even though anger can be very distancing in the moment it's also very honest and very raw and to the extent that I've learned how to express it in a way that that might in the moment distance you but then also include my reason for wanting us to have the conversation and where I hope we end up actually brings us closer if I don't say it at all and I sweep it under the rug, we don't get closer. Yeah. It's what you do when I say I'm angry. And I want to come full cycle to that whole notion of the net and staying with your reality. So I can say, hey, Carol, I'm, I'm really angry when you did X. And, and I, feel, I feel dismissed. I, I feel um, um, unimportant because of all the work I've done. That's different than saying... Carol, I feel angry because you are an inconsiderate person. See, the, the, the dramatic difference in the first one, I'm owning what's going on for me. And that's the part that is connecting. Because Carol then can say and does say, God, what have I done? What's going on? But the second one distances us. Yeah. So anger is what you follow it with. I mean, this sort of example... You know, I'm drawn to that word risk a lot yeah. um, that has come up a couple of times in, the, in this conversation. And, and I guess, Carol, if we, we go back to the example of you talking to your husband 
and you've been at home with the kids. Yeah. He comes back. Yeah. You felt upset. Yes. When you didn't get an indication from him that he was listening to you, right? So um, maybe that wasn't... When, Go on, when please. I, when it's, so I didn't feel heard. And when I don't feel heard, I feel dismissed and I feel distanced okay. and I feel resentful. And I felt those things because he made no eye contact. And the only response I got was a grunt. Okay. So, okay. So you've stayed on your side of the net exactly. and you've explained that and you've, yes. you've, you've explained how you felt yes. as a result of his behaviors. Exactly. So, got it. So there is a risk there, isn't there? Because yes. by opening up, by being vulnerable, by expressing how you felt, mm -hmm. you are on one hand risking real rejection. Because if at that point, your husband, but this could be any relationship, if yeah. at that point, there is nothing coming back. Yeah. That in some ways, I don't know, is that a worse situation? Because you you have risked expressing what is going on inside your heart and then someone ignores that. And, and, okay. it, and, and there's this bit in the book also where you said there's a cost to silence. So I thought that was a, a beautiful um, sort of almost conflict. There's a risk to opening up, but yep. there's a cost to silence. So I think it's really important at this juncture to come back to the fact that A, stay on your side of the net and B, Tell the other person what your intent is in saying what you've said. So when I said, Andy, when you don't make eye contact and all I get is a grunt, I don't feel heard. And then I feel dismissed and sad. And I'm telling you this because when I feel more distanced from you, I can't be there for you in the way I want to be there for you. Yeah. So now he can still say, I don't care. So it is a risk. You're right. But it's less likely that he's going to respond with that if I've told him what I'm hoping the outcome will be of having told him. And let's go back to the purpose of feedback. The purpose of feedback is to move into a problem-solving conversation, not to change, not to change somebody else. So what, you know, but and by the way, net jumping invites net jumping. If I just said, I feel that you don't care and I feel that you're insensitive. Then he says, well, I feel that you're really too needy. And now we've really got a problem. Yeah. And I think I, I can't imagine there is anybody who is listening right now who has not been in that situation at some point in their life. Net jumping leads to more net jumping and just exactly. accusations coming left, right and center. Exactly. And then you almost forgotten what the problem was in the first place. Right, right. And, and you've especially forgotten what the purpose of telling the person was. We have a problem that I would like to talk about how to solve. So when I'm able to stay on my side of the net and say what I say to Andy, then Andy can look at me and say, well, honey, if you want my undivided attention, you're going to have to give me a half an hour to unwind when I get home from the office. And then I think, well, in fact, I say half an hour. Are you kidding? I've been counting the minutes for you to get home. How about five minutes? We settled on 15. More time than I wanted to give him, less time than he needed. But guess what? After that, I waited and then I got 
his attention and he made eye contact and we had a conversation. And so instead of escalating, not only did we de-escalate by staying by my staying on my side of the net, but we moved into problem solving. It's often hard in the moment to get it exactly right. So, so let's play out the worst scenario. So let's assume that Carol had made an accusation and Andy had responded in kind. We don't have to do this perfectly. Uh, hopefully with this model and this realization, one or both can say, hey, hey, wait a minute. This isn't working. We're, we're both attacking each other. And so you can stop this. And what is really very helpful is, could Andy have said, honey, what's going on with you? And that might have cued her to get back to feelings. Or she could have said, hey, wait a minute. I just realized I attacked you. Let's step back. So, so I don't want the audience to think you've got to do this perfectly. But the power of this model is allows you to correct and improve when you do make a mistake, because we all yeah. make mistakes. Yeah. And in well, fact, my, my cousin, uh, who's a journalist uh, and had knew about my work, but after she read the book and she, she said to her husband, you've got to read this book too. So, so they, so he read it too. And now they've got a shortcut. I think that was over the net. <laughs> and, and they're immediately, they both know what they're talking about. And of course, that's what our students, in fact, not just, I mean, the entire Stanford GSB graduate school business culture, that language is part of the culture. Yeah. You're over the net and everybody knows what that means. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I love about that is that clearly many, on many occasions during this conversation, on many occasions during the book, it is very clear that language matters. Oh, yeah. The way we use language absolutely determines the quality of our relationships. And then if you can, with your partner, with your work colleagues, with your friends, have a common vernacular that you're all using, that you all know the meaning, I guess in some ways it takes the, the emotional sting out of it because if someone sort of says that's over the net, you, you know what? Yeah, you're right, actually. That was over the net, wasn't it? And it, exactly. it almost, I really like that. And I, and I feel, I can see how that's in the culture at Stanford. I, I, believe, I, would, I would hazard a guess that many of those graduates have brought yeah. that terminology into their companies. Is that right? Correct. Yes. yes. Yeah. Not as many, not as many as we'd like, but certainly many. <laughs> because of course we'd like everyone to have that vernacular. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's brilliant. And it's very non-judgmental. It's very factual. It's it's super nice. And another thing in that example, and I what I love about that, I think it's a very relatable example, Carol. So I'm, I'm sorry to keep coming back to it, but I no, think absolutely I think we can use that and sort of, you know, we can probably demonstrate quite a few points on the back of that. So this idea that there's a cost to silence, right? So let's just imagine, and, and I think pinch points, which is another beautiful yeah. section in the book comes in nicely here, that let's say, you know, you're feeling the way that you're feeling, you, you're not feeling heard. I think that was a feeling. Yeah, you're not feeling heard. heard. Okay, I'm getting there. Um, but you chose not to say anything because you mm -hmm. thought, ah, you know what? I don't know. Maybe you might have thought he looks tired. He's had a long day at work. Okay, so that's maybe you understanding what might be going on in his head. But again, you're, you would be speculating, I guess, because you don't yes. know that. Yes. But what would happen? Let's play it out 
that you said nothing and it would keep happening night after night. How might that scenario play out? Well, that's a great example of how a pinch can grow into a crunch. So the first time it happens, it's a pinch. I feel feel unheard. I feel dismissed. I let it go. Happens the next night. It happens. Now, now I feel a little worse about it, and I let it go. And, you know, we talk about this in the book with pinches. We tend to say, eh, it's not worth it. And instead, we urge people to replace the pronoun with the word I, you, or we. I'm not worth it, you're not worth it, or we're not worth it. And then ask yourself again whether it's worth raising. So what happens is if I don't say anything, it's a week later and Andy says something and I bite his head off over it. Well, maybe it's got nothing to do with what he just said. It's got yeah. to do with the fact that for a week I've been growing more and more resentful that my needs aren't being taken care of, that I'm not feeling heard, that I'm feeling less and less important. So now he needs something from me. Well, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, let's see what it feels like to need something and not get it. That's really productive. <laughs> yeah, that that's very powerful. When you say it's not worth it, replace it with "I'm not worth it," "You're not worth it," "We're not worth it." But because that just it just changes everything, doesn't it? And and I guess that is the reality of what we're often saying. You know, within that yes. relationship, we, yes. we we are effectively saying that we're yes. trying to give us some psychological distance by saying it exactly. But who's and- it? Who's that? It's us. Right. And David's point about the fact that there is always a risk is is, I don't want to I don't want to just blow past that. It's risky. It's also risky to say nothing. (laughs) Uh, It might come out in some other way. And I personally sometimes say this feels risky. I want to say this to you and I want you to know that it feels risky. Okay. So another thought I had was, let's say your husband had had a really busy day at work and he didn't get mm-hmm. a lunch break and his, mm-hmm. his drive mm-hmm. home was stuck in traffic and he's just, oh, he's in the house, just wants to unwind a little bit in, in whatever way he, he likes to do yep. that. And let's say at that point, you said you stayed on your side of the net and you brought it up. So, you know, you didn't make judgments, but you said yeah. that. Now, one option might be he's just not in the headspace for that conversation at that point. So what options are there at that point? Because he may well have heard his wife say something really, you know, really significant and, and, and meaningful that really does need attention. Is it a good practice at that point? And, and I guess... You know, throughout this book, I think through learning about relationships, we learn more about ourselves. Would it be a good practice for him to say, hey, look, I can understand that that is, you know, something that we, we really need to talk about. Um, I, can, can you give me 15 minutes just to sort of unwind from work? And then I'd love to sit down over a cup of tea and have that conversation, you know, or, or maybe give us some examples of, because I well, that, imagine that may yeah. happen from, from, from quite a lot. That's almost exactly what happened once I learned to stay on my side of the net, mm. which is, you know, honey, I just, I need some, I need some time to unwind. Um, and, and let's talk, you know, and 
So then I was like, okay. And he had the good sense to say, I need some time to unwind. Let's talk about this over dinner. Not, I need some time to unwind and then never come back to it or never talk about when we're going to talk about it. It's like right now, I, you know, I'm sorry, I can't have this conversation right now. I hear how important this is to you. I can't have it. In fact, I don't want to have it because I want to give it its due. Can we have the conversation at dinner? And then we had the conversation about the negotiation at dinner. Yeah. Really hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to the sponsors. Now, there's no question that getting high quality sleep is one of the most impactful things that we can do for our health and well-being. You know, sleep is when our brain clears out a lot of the metabolic waste that builds up inside it throughout the day. And a chronic lack of sleep can negatively impact our well-being in a whole host of different ways. It can affect your mental health, your ability to focus, your ability to concentrate. And of course, today's conversation is all about relationships. Poor quality sleep makes good quality relationships harder because you feel tired, a bit more moody, you're a bit more emotionally volatile. So anything we can do to help improve our sleep is really, really worthwhile. Now, one of the biggest obstacles that I see to good quality sleep is excessive blue light exposure, particularly in the evenings. And that's why I'm a huge fan of Blue Blocks glasses, and I've been wearing them for over two years now. What I like about them is that they make really high quality lenses that protect you from the damaging effects of too much blue light. Now, I've got two pairs, right? So in the daytime, I will wear their clear lenses if I'm gonna be on my computer for long periods of time and therefore being exposed to lots of artificial lights. And it's really helped me with my focus, my ability to concentrate and also reduce fatigue levels. But I've also got a prescription pair of their red lens glasses, which I wear in the evenings. If I'm going to be on my laptop or phone, and I can definitely notice a difference in the quality of my sleep. I've been so impressed with their glasses that my wife and children also have their own pairs. Now, if you want to try them out, they're offering a really great discount. They're giving 15% off any glasses on their website for my podcast listeners. You can either use the discount codes LIVEMORE at the checkout, that's L-I-V-E-M-O-R-E, all one word, no space, or you can go direct to their website at blueblocks.com forward slash livemore. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com forward slash livemore. And the 15% discount will be automatically applied. Vivo Barefoot are also sponsoring today's show. Now, I have been a fan of Vivo Barefoot shoes for many years now. I think it's about eight or nine years I've been wearing them well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have transformed my life and that of many of my patients. Now, if you've heard me talk about Vivo Barefoot shoes before and I've never given them a go, I really would encourage you to give them a try. Minimalist shoes like Viva Barefoot shoes really can have a profound impact on many aspects of our health. They can help with hip pain, knee pain, back pain, foot pain, as well as increase your general mobility. 
The other thing I love about wearing minimalist shoes like Viva Barefoot is not only are they super comfortable, but they help you be more mindful when you're moving. So if you go walking, you're just much more connected to the ground and to that experience. And I know because they've been supporting my show now for over a year, many of you I know have taken advantage of their fantastic offer and have got in touch with me to say that they have transformed your own life and your own relationship with movement. So guys, if you're interested, I really would take advantage of this special 20% discount that they're giving. They've got a great range of shoes for kids and adults. I've said this on the show before, they're the only shoes that I wear. My wife has been wearing them for about four years now. And they're the only shoes I will put my kids in. I really do believe that we're going to look back in a few years and wonder what on earth we're we doing putting so many people in heavily cushioned shoes. So if you've been considering it, if you've been sitting on the fence, if you think now it's spring, the weather's a bit better, you want to get out moving more, walking more, uh, whatever it is you like to do, I really would encourage you to give it a go. It's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you don't like them, you just send them back for a full refund. For listeners of my show, if you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. All you have to do is you go to that landing page, vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. You need to sign up to an online account and then put in the code LM20. All details are on there. Check it out at vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. I wanted to talk there about something I've been thinking about probably for the past few weeks, actually. Um, I'm in the process of writing my next book at the moment, and one of the chapters is on conversations. Now, you use the term armor. I use the term masks in, in this chapter that I'm writing. And um, that there's, there's this clash inside my head, which I thought it would be really awesome to actually discuss with you both and to, and, uh, to hear your thoughts on it. So I feel that solitude... Uh, 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 not a feeling... <laughs> Ah, okay. Okay, this is great. Personal <laughs> session. Uh, okay. It's okay, okay to say you think. Just don't call it a feeling. Okay, I love that. Okay, great. So let me try again. I think... Man, my kids and wife are going to wonder what has happened to me when I walk into the kitchen after this and I start <laughs> suddenly not using the word I feel anymore. But I... Okay, let's try. I think mm-hmm. that solitude... that you know, not loneliness, solitude, intentional solitude, being able to be alone with your Mm -hmm. thoughts Mm -hmm. is very important for physical health, mental health, emotional health. Now, I I think that when we can't be with ourselves, when we struggle with that and we we distract with, and we all get distracted, you know, mm-hmm. most of the time, I guess. But, but you know, when we can't be with ourselves to really understand ourselves, then we often have a delicate sense of who we are, a fragile sense of who we are. Yeah. And then we bring that into our interactions with other people. So therefore, we're, we're almost using other people to prop up our sense of who we are, our insecurities. And then I feel that I think that's a very vulnerable position to be in because 
as soon as those friends, as soon as that network is not supporting that fragile view of who you have of yourself, you start to get really emotional and upset and it can really cause friction. So on on one side, I think that solitude helps us get in touch with our emotions so we can better show up in our relationships. But on the flip side, I kind of feel, and this is something Esther Perel said to me when I spoke to her on the podcast, that, you know, she said that we are relational beings. We only exist in relation to other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that also we start to learn who we are. We start to learn about ourselves through the interactions we have with other people. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive, but I wonder if you could help me unpack that a little bit. Yeah, you're, you're getting at a crucial, crucial concept. Uh, we talk about building an internal gyroscope that in essence, if I can get a lot of feedback about how my behavior affects other people, it gets me to reflect about why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because particularly if I do something that's dysfunctional, I don't want to. So I'm, I'm going to reflect. But that feedback also allows me to know more about myself. I know that when I do X, uh, it works uh, with that person. I know when I do Y, it's less functional. We start to see how others see us. That builds an internal gyroscope so that when somebody says something, I'm not upended. That I have this solidity. I have this this. Uh, solidness within me. So other people have helped me build the solidness, which in paradoxically allows me to be open to more feedback because we're often afraid of it because one piece of feedback could be so upending if we don't have this central part of ourselves. So again, it's that paradox. We need other people to know the impact we have, which gets us to understand ourselves better. And we build a self-concept And we accept ourselves. The acceptance is really important. Because I'm also being accepted by you, I accept myself more. And therefore, and and in that process, I have used solitude to reflect. Why am I acting as I'm doing? What is it I want? Why do I do that? But then I know I'm using other people's feedback to know myself, which builds a solidity about myself. Yeah, Carol, you want to add to that? Uh, I was back on the fragility um, that you were that you mentioned, uh, Rangan, and the idea that the less I tell you about me, what's really going on for me, the less. The, the more opportunity I give you to make up stories about me. Yeah. And when that happens, I'm actually m- more fragile because the stories you're going to make up about me are going to maybe be way worse than what I'm actually going to tell you about me. So uh, I, I think there's a really interesting, but back to your solitude uh, question, the there's a there's the processing part that David was just talking about. There's the learning part that happens in my interactions with others, and then I have to do something. With yeah, it. 
I have to process it. I have to internalize it. I have to think about what does it mean? I have to think about how does that, how do I want that to inform my choices going forward? And, and some of that as an extrovert, I, some of that I do in conversation with others. And some of that I, I actually have to do on my own. That's why, by the way, the students have to keep a journal, which they hate and then thank us for forever. There is something about the process of integrating learning that journaling, I think, is especially useful for. Yeah. I mean, there's many, um, many greats throughout history who have waxed lyrical about the benefits of journaling every day. And I don't think everyone has to, but I'm sure people can find alternatives that suit them. But but I do feel some form of intentional solitude helps us know ourselves and helps us, you know, show up for others. So yeah, I really just wanted to discuss that because it's uh, just something I've been wrestling with in my head. So I really appreciate your your insights sure. on that. Exceptional relationships. Okay, you 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 mentioned at the start of this conversation the six criteria, and I'm wondering, you know, is there a limit? how many exceptional relationships one can have in one's life because it sounds as though they need time they need commitment they they need intention on both sides to deepen Mm -hmm. and you know we're sort of busier than ever before and people are struggling even to find five minutes a day to journal so you know is it something that is harder now in this modern age Um, and actually how many is it realistic that someone might be able to have in their life I, I think if you have four or five, you're ahead of the game. That, that would be what I would shoot for. But uh, I want to come back to what Carol talked about before, that all relationships are in a continuum. Because the four or five are going to take a lot of work. It's going to take time. It's going to take risk-taking. And I, it's not just that I have other distractions. Uh, but um, I have other things to do, and four or five are a lot. But there's two points to make. One is that doesn't mean other relationships can't also be important, can't also be personal, can't also be more honest. And Carol made the point, I really want to underline it. Can you look at all your relationships and ask yourself, not can I make this exceptional? You may want to do that for four or five. But can I move it along the continuum so it's, it's a little higher than it was before? And the other point I want to make when talking about time is I think that the issue is not do I have time, but it's how I use my time. And so much of our interactions are superficial when they don't have to be. So I often have the thought, gee, I'm having conversations at this level. Could I drop it one level? Could I make it a little more intimate? Not that I'm sharing everything. And I think that if we saw all of our ongoing interactions as an opportunity to be a little more honest, to be a little more self-revealing, to be a little more curious about the other person, to be a little more willing to raise a pinch, we'll make those other relationships also have meaning in our life. So we shouldn't get hooked on saying, I've got to have my four or five. Yes, I hope we do have exceptional. But to see all relationships as having the potential to be more personally gratifying and in their own ways to be a source of learning. Yeah. I'm also wondering about over a lifetime. 
I think four or five at a given moment in my life is is a is a realistic uh, more than that feels overwhelming, but it doesn't mean that over my lifetime I've only had four or five. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that when you mentioned four or five, David, I was immediately struck by, I don't know if you've heard of it, this Okinawan concept of Moai mates or Moai friends. This um, in the, you know, have you heard of the Blue Zones? These, no. these mm-hmm. five areas around the world, yeah. these little pockets yes. where they have very high rates of longevity yeah. and uh, very good health into, you know, even into their hundreds. Yes. Um, and, uh, I've sort of researched quite a lot about them and they have this concept in one of the, the blue zones, Okinawa in Japan, yeah. they talk about these Moai mates that they have five friends for life from, uh, I think, childhood all the way to until they die. These five friends who support them emotionally, physically, financially, you know, and I thought what a lovely concept. Now, of course, that yeah. was in a different time, in a different era. Um, but it was striking that you also said four or five, David, which was the yes. number they talk about. But then, Carol, I think what you said was, it really brought up something in me, which is this idea of moving on from relationships and relationships serving us at various times. And that sometimes we have to move on and not cling to relationships that no longer fit. And I think this is something that many people really, really struggle with. I know I have struggled with this in the past, really struggled with it. Um, Where in your 20s, let's say you're, you know, after work, you go out to bars, you have, you know, you're sort of drinking and, you know, you have friends that kind of fit that, but then sort of got married, had kids, sort of moved on and like, it's kind of not my scene anymore. I don't really enjoy Mm -hmm. it. I don't want to do it. But some of those relationships, not all of them, some of them, just no longer seem to work anymore. And I wonder if you have any helpful advice to people on how to navigate that. It might have been an exceptional relationship. It may not. It may have been just a very deep relationship. But I think this is something people really struggle with. Yeah. I I think what's important there is that we not blame the other person Mm -hmm. if the relationship starts to lose some of its intimacy, some of its closeness. And, and we tend to say, well, well, you're not this or you're not that. And again, it's, it's back to self-awareness is can I say this? And I think you said this, that this no longer fits me. I'm owning what's going on. And can we honor it? Uh, can we use the parallel of what is it, the UK? You now recently had a funeral. Uh, the king is dead, long live the king, that we honor that it was important in the past, and now we need to move on. But I need to move on. It's not because you are lucky. Okay. And in fact, you know, the, there is a chapter in the book about, you know, some, it's more about relationships that don't ever really quite reach that level. And, and the acceptance in that doesn't mean you don't have a good relationship, just means it's not exceptional. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, but I, and I'll add that uh, I don't want to under uh, understate how hard that is when one person uh, has a different set of needs than they had before that now shifts the nature of the relationship that they that they've had up until now, yeah. uh, and I mean the relationship. We're, we're all works in progress all the time. 
and relationships are dynamic. So to expect anything to be a certain way forever, I think is unrealistic. Yeah, I think this is this is something we should really talk about that that relationships change. I've heard you in a, in another interview, Carol. I heard you um, involved with when I was researching for, for today's show that you was talking about your own marriage and saying that the relationship you have now with your husband is not the same relationship you had when you met. In fact, you are different people, both of you, from yes. when you met. Yes. Um, and I think that's something we really need to recognise that actually. It's something I've been very aware of in 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 um, in my own marriage, and you know I really feel that when you put in the work. Wait, 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 wait! What do you really feel? Ah, this is great. <laughs> so, okay, okay, this is going to be very hard for me because my that is the way. Uh, th- this way, so far, I communicate a lot. So this is going to take That's a lot good. of intentional work but- for me. But the reason I stopped you is that right now you actually were feeling something. Yeah, you're right. I was. I, I was feeling, well, I was talking about my wife yes. and I was going to say that I feel we've got a truly exceptional relationship. Okay, that's not a feeling. Okay, I but think. you're getting closer. We... You think you have, a, and what's the feeling attached to that? The feeling is a, I feel a bit emotional saying that. I feel um I feel like proud. I feel mm-hmm. satisfied. Okay. I feel grateful. I feel happy. I feel fortunate. See what's happening here? We're learning so much more about you. Yeah. In this moment. I almost said go pull out your book and and pull open the appendix and find the feelings. Um, just like yeah. the students, right? And it, we're having a fabulous conversation. I'm really enjoying it. I find it intellectually really interesting and stimulating. And right now, I feel even more drawn toward you. I, I, I think what I was trying to get at, and I'm going to be, I'm going to really think about these feelings because I think. It, it's awesome to have this reflected back. It, it really is. Um, I think I have mentioned this a couple of times on the show before, but we have a completely different relationship now than when we got married. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And when we got married, there was, you know, it was a whirlwind romance and it was, you know, desire and it was like, you know, passion. And, and then the reality hit of actually, oh, kind of this day-to-day life and then there's all kinds of dynamics that maybe we weren't aware of when we got married and this is just you know as you said carol in that interview i heard you you're still discovering things about your husband right new things after however many years of marriage and i feel i'm not i feel let me catch myself again um i know that we we have a much better and more effective way of communicating there's still you know a lot of as i read your book uh, I see. Oh, I could improve this. Actually, I could change the way I interact here. I could. I could learn from that chapter and that case study. And, th- and this is why I, I. I think I'm such. You know, so delighted with that book, which why I think everyone should get a copy because it helps us 
understand ourselves. It helps give us practical tools that we can use in everyday life. And that's one thing I would challenge every, everyone who's listening to do is go, just take one thing from this conversation and go, you know what, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that in one of my work relationships or with my partner or with my parent, you know, whatever it is. So, um, but it, but it's, it's not the same relationship now as it was at the start. And that's a good thing. And I see a lot of problems. And I've got friends who, I've got a friend who called me recently said, hey man, I'm really struggling in my marriage. You know, she's just not the same person that I married. And it's like, well, you know what? After 15, 20 years, <laughs> yeah, it, she's not going to be the same person. Do you know what I mean? Is it, do you, do you, sure. did, did these things come up in your course as well? Do people talk to you yes. about their, their partners, their marriages? Yes, they do. They do. And what I would also say is you can't go back. It's not just that um, we can't go back, but can we also appreciate the present and the future? So um, I'm in my 80s. Um, so not only is Carol saying, am I discovering new things about myself and about Eva? But we're facing new issues. So we've been having conversations around end of life. What is that going to be? What sort of care do we want to give each other? So that wasn't a discussion that we had when we first got married or uh, we had different uh, conversations then. We had different conversations with kids. We had different conversations when we made choices about work and the centrality. So I think where I would want to go is to say, what are the issues that are of central importance to me and my spouse at this point in our life? And can we be more honest and direct and self-revealing about those issues and not try to go back to where we were 30 years ago? Yeah. I'm thinking about that phrase, David, you use, you can't go back. And I think that's actually really, really powerful and I'm, I think about in my own life, I, I'm very, very lucky to have a group of really close friends with one of those friends who, you know, I'm super close with things have evolved recently because we, we now do a bit of work together. And it's really interesting this because there have been pinch points on my side, for sure, uh, that as of yet, I have not brought up. And I've been close to bringing them up at various times. And I started reading your book about, hey, you know what, I'm, let me just absorb this material first and really, um, really try and think about the most productive way of doing this. And one of the reasons I haven't yet we once put a bit of time in the diary remotely, which is obviously the way things are. Certainly in the UK, we're only just coming out of our third lockdown as we record this conversation. Um, we've been super busy and I've really felt, you know, I need time. I need space because this relationship matters to me. It really mm -hmm. matters to me. And I don't think it's possible to go back because things have changed. New things have come up because of us now interacting in a new environment. Mm. But I'm just thinking, 
have I not had this conversation yet because I haven't had time, because I feel we need proper time and energy, because we've not managed to get face to face? Or is it that I'm actually scared? And because I'm scared, I'm not curating the time. And of course, it's hard. I mean, you can't possibly know if we th- if we use the over the net analogy, I guess it yeah. would be impossible to know exactly what's gone on. But I imagine you might have some theories based upon your many years of experience. Yeah, I, I think that you, you put your finger on it. I think we use time as an excuse. Uh, we say, oh, we don't have time. Or and I'm not it, ready. Or I'm not ready. Um, I think when you were starting to say, maybe I'm scared, I think that that's a a good chance for introspection. I think there's also a mental model, Carol talked about that, that may be getting in the way. And that is, if we have a pinch or annoyance, it's so easy to say something is wrong with the other person or something is wrong with the relationship. And I'd want to reframe that and say, hmm, this is an opportunity for learning. So I'm going to use an analogy. You're driving your car to work, and it starts to sputter a little bit. You don't say, bad car, bad car. You say, hey, there's something I need to work on. So is this pinch an opportunity for you to discover what is not there in the relationship that you want, or an opportunity for you to learn more about yourself, or to learn more about the other person? And I think that if you go in with the app attitude that pinches, even crunches, even conflict is an opportunity to learn, we're more willing to find the time to be able to do it because it is a sign that something important is going on and ignoring it is ignoring something that might be a crucial source of learning for you, the other in the relationship. Yeah, I'm just to, just to respond. I feel that I Mm-mm. back up. <laughs> I have learned a lot about myself as I have reflected on this particular situation. I've journaled it. I've meditated on it. I've been for walks thinking about it. I guess. Excuse so me. I, let, let me break in. That's wonderful, and you only have two thirds of the reality. You don't know where the other person is, yeah. what's going on there. So, so I'm in favor of all that you're talking about, about reflection, solitude, and journaling. But I also want to talk about the richness of the interpersonal function of knowing their reality and the two of you joining together to figure this out. And that's a form of connection. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. And if as 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 I sort of articulate this with you both, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I said I think I didn't say I feel. <laughs> okay, so maybe, it, maybe something's happening. Um, my fear, I think, is coming from. In some ways, actually, reading the book has has made me realize that I could start tweaking my language, and if I can um, expand my vocabulary on this, I can have a much more productive conversation around this rather than, yes, prioritizing it, make the time, but go in. Um, and, And again, maybe that's fear. Maybe you're never ready. You learn and, and this is something you do say in the book, it's an experiential process. You can't just read and rationalize it and go, oh, yeah. I know how to do it now. You, you only learn by doing it and, and being in there. 
Um, yeah, so I'm just sharing that there, there's been this going on in my head a little bit for, for a few months now, actually, for a few wow. months. So I, so while we're on it, Rangan, I want to go back to a couple of things that David said. One is curiosity and the, the importance of you remaining curious it, as you go into it. Uh, and whether or not, what, what is your relationship with curiosity? How do you feel about being curious? And the other thing I want to say is that when you journal and you think about it, you're also feeling a lot of things about it. And I would encourage you to capture some of those feelings as you journal or walk or think about. Because my hunch is that when you have this conversation with your dear friend, the more you can also name your feelings about this, the stronger the likelihood is that you're going to have a really productive exchange. And I, I to, to, that's really terribly important what Carol just said. And to build on that, I'm a little worried about your emphasis on language. Uh, so I'm both going to agree and I'm going to disagree. Uh, language okay. is important. But I think what is most important is that you have the theory right. And if you have the theory right, the words will follow. And I really worry when our students say, well, how do I get just the right words? Mm -hmm. And if you, in a sense, say what Carol just said, how am I feeling? What's my intention? Uh, I wonder what's going on for the other person. And you could also, when you said, I'm afraid of raising this, I would urge you to say that as well, because that's an important feeling. And you don't have to get it perfectly. In yeah. fact, um, not infrequently, Eva says to me with some exasperation, you teach this stuff. Why don't you do it right? And I'm, I'm over the net. I forget a feeling. I make an attribution. But I can recover. And so, again, it's the theory behind all of this. Yeah. That if you have that, and you're, you're getting it in an impressive way of the role of feelings in catching yourself. I, I, I want you to honor what you're doing. And you didn't get the words exactly right at the beginning, but you caught yourself. That's what's important. Yeah, it's such wonderful advice. And, uh, and uh, I really appreciate hearing that. It's, it's like getting a masterclass. And it, you know what's, it's, it's really striking to me that even that example you gave just then with your own wife, that you know, we can often see things beautifully in other people. Um, you know, we're, we're brilliant at, at seeing it, but but often it's it's so hard to see it in ourselves. You know, we're sort of within ourselves. It's very yes. hard to step outside us and go, this is what's going on here. Uh, and as you, you, you were explaining that example, David, there's this very powerful example at the end of the book between you both, which mm -hmm. you, you know, very courageously, I feel, shared in the book. But I think it's one of the most powerful sections because, as you just said, it shows that even the experts in this field who have been teaching it to thousands of students can also sometimes slip up. Um, I wonder if you, you might feel uh, like you can share some of, mm -hmm. some of that story and, and what some of the learnings are for us. So... 
you know, the, the bottom line of the story is that, that uh, we had an incident that occurred that resulted in my saying, I would never talk to David again. And, and we, we were already very close. We already had what we would probably say was an exceptional relationship. We, David had been my mentor and, and, and then eventually we had, uh, we'd got grown closer and closer. We'd done a lot of work together. We, de- we developed a lot of programs together and the details of what happened are not particularly important, but essentially David did not support me in a way that I wanted to be supported. And in a way I believed was what, uh, and certainly not what I expected in terms of support. Can I and, pause you there for a second, Carol? Sure. I just want to get this clear. So you just said David did not support me mm-hmm. in a way that I wanted to be supported. So yeah. if I'm if I got this right, you are still on your side of the net there, aren't you? Because mm-hmm. yes, that is was, factually correct. That's correct. Okay, correct. Please continue. And um, and I felt betrayed. I felt abandoned. I felt resentful and I was furious (laughs) and I said I'd never talk to him again uh and the chapter of course is about how we came back from that so we could talk about that a little bit more and I want David to say a little bit about what it felt what his feelings were on the receiving end of this yes I I felt um helpless um, I think what is interesting about this is both each of us thought we were correct. Yeah. Um, and where we trapped ourselves was starting to argue about who, who was, was more right. correct. And that made it worse. So I felt helpless. Um, I felt at uh, part of the helplessness was a loss at what to do. I, I was pained. I, was, I missed Carol's uh, presence and uh, closeness very much. Um, and um, I, I felt um, it was a sense of inadequacy of I didn't know what to do. And in fact, what turns out was that we needed other people to help us to start to unfreeze this log jam that uh, that we were in. Um, and, and I think what is important is that even though Carol was furious, we had to work together, we worked together as professionals, um, we didn't demonize each other. Uh, we didn't uh, say that the other person was an evil person. We assumed the other person had the best of intentions but I, quote, knew she was wrong, and she, quote, knew I was wrong. And that's where our impasse was. Did you both cross the net in that interaction? No, I no, don't think we did. I don't, I, I think what happened in that, in that, what what finally broke the logjam was, well, as David said, first of all, you know, I especially had a couple of people in my life who kept saying, really, Carol, you're never going to talk to David again? what's wrong with you? (laughs) He's only like one of the most important people in your life. Like you didn't, you know, he didn't kill anybody. He didn't damage anything terribly. Uh, So, uh, you know, what happened activated a lot of stuff for me that had nothing to do with David. 
as things like that tend to be. Uh, and it wasn't until I actually, until enough people were at me to say, at least have a conversation with them. Yeah. We, we had tried, and the chapter talks about, you know, one, a conversation yeah. that didn't go so well. But I think what, while we did not go over the net, one of the things that we both had to learn to do better was meet each other emotionally, which is another part of what we talk about in the book. And what I didn't, I didn't realize David was in any pain. I just knew that I was in pain. So, and, and David recognized my pain, but it was a while before he found a way to express it in a way that I believed him or that I, that, that I felt met for lack of a better uh, way of describing it. And so we so, both- so, it, so it is, in a sense, it was only when I said, I, I can really hear how upset how you are, how painful, and I can really hear why this is so important to you. Now, what was interesting is we never agreed <laughs> about what the right answer was. To, the, to this I, day, to this day, we dis- to this day, I believe he was wrong, and he believes I was wrong, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it was irrelevant because I, in a sense, tried to, and it was took some effort on my part to really try to understand. And there's a difference between understanding somebody and understanding somebody emotionally exactly. and agreeing with them. And so I could say that I could really understand why you're so upset. And I'm sorry. And I'm exactly. sorry that what I did did that. I probably wouldn't have changed my decision, but that was irrelevant, as Carol was saying. How important in relationships is the word sorry? Is this something that comes up in your course? Because many huge. people struggle. To, that, that word just can't come out of their mouth. And they will even acknowledge, I just can't say it. Um, you know, how do you help people with that? It, it depends on what the sorry is and how often we say, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. As a dis- dismissive comment which is really very different than saying, I'm really sorry. And I think that part of what is hard about that is that we think that if I say I'm sorry, that we have to agree with the other person when, when we really don't. Or we think that we're totally at, quote, at fault when we think the other person has some responsibility. And so I would want to go back to the notion that I am sorry that you're upset I, because I am pained that you are pained because I care about you. So that's the emotional connection. It's not that I did necessarily did something wrong or that I'm 100% responsible, but I, but I am sorry that we're in this state. I'm sorry that you're hurting. I'm sorry that I inadvertently did something that may have caused that. That's a sorry that is a connecting sorry. Yeah. It's interesting for me that, that uh, number five in the hallmark, these six hallmarks of exceptional yeah. relationships that you put right at the start of the book yeah. is that you deal with conflict productively. Yeah. And it's a really, I think it's a really beautiful thing for us to, to sit with this idea that having an exceptional relationship does not mean you're not going to have conflicts because many of us that's, think when we've yeah. got it right, we've got yeah. to sort. There's not going to be any yeah. conflicts. Yeah, but but that's not true, is it? 
No, that's it's, not it's, true in my marriage. It's, it, <laughs> I don't think it's true in any really, really robust relationship, much less an exceptional one. Because if we look at the, at, I mean, these these hallmarks are interdependent, and if one of the hallmarks is that we are both committed to our own and each other's growth, there's, you know, most conflict results in some growth for probably both of us. Um, and, and the other thing, so we're back to, I think people avoid conflict because of fear and because it feels risky to lean into it. And because they don't, they're not equipped with, you know, as many, tools is are helpful to have i mean i'm 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 sort of i thought that could could you even make a case that it's very hard to have an exceptional relationship without conflicts because yes. yeah it's impossible yeah it's impossible that's what yeah. i'm starting to come around to that it's actually a necessary part like people say oh we never yeah. argue it's like well yeah. maybe that's because no one's risking no one's going yes. deep no one's exactly. opening up so exactly. therefore you've both got this this kind of fictional impression of who you are and how you interact. And yeah. well, one thing I've seen recently, and I, I'm, I know you will have seen this uh, or, or been fed this back yeah. by your students, some friends of mine who have been very good friends for years. One of them has been on a um, self-development journey in many ways. And really, since the breakup of a relationship, really getting to know themselves better and realizing that a dynamic in a previous relationship yeah. was actually very flawed that served at a time and has had a, and has gone through the very difficult process of actually um, making that be known. I don't know how it was made known, yes. um, but really quite traumatic, certainly on one side, because that dynamic has changed. But as you've already said, David, as you said, Carol, you can't go back. You know, once yeah. you are aware, things kind of, they just change, don't they? they you, you, and you, you either evolve with it and change with it, mm -hmm. or you end up very disappointed. And, and I think back to Carol's point about these six hallmarks being interdependent. If I am going to be more myself and show more of myself and be more of myself, some of that is going to work well with Carol. And some of it's not going to work well. And likewise, when Carol is more herself. So this process of being known, and we think that we need to find a mate where it's perfect, that everything fits. And the consequence of that is, is that we shut out those parts of ourselves, which may be different, and we're less of ourselves. So instead, can we say, gee, this conflict is raising a possibility of how can I still be more of myself and you be more of yourself in a way that's functional? Yeah. Can we work this out rather than one of us is wrong or the relationship is bad? I know that my relationship with my wife is all the better for the conflict mm -hmm. that yes. we have successfully navigated Absolutely. and got through. And without that, without that, it, it it would have been a fraction of what it is now. We, it was a necessary part. So my my sort of thought there is, do you think that many people and relationships, and I, I guess I'm talking well, any relationship really, uh, not just love relationships, but end them prematurely because they don't have the skills, they don't have the toolkit to actually manage that conflict. So the easy thing to do is to go, actually, you know what? 
I'm out. This relationship doesn't work. And of course, many people, and I've seen this with some patients, they jump from relationship to relationship. Yeah. It's like, well, that's a, what's the common factor here? What, what, what's, what's with you everywhere you go? But it's very, do you know what I mean? And I say that with love and yes. compassion. Yes. I really do. Not, not, not sneering at anyone. I really am not. But, but you know, and that's why well, I think I, it's either, so powerful. They either, they either end the relationship or they stall. They stay in the relationship in a stalled way, which is, a, which is almost a different kind of dying, right? Where nobody, you know, this becomes the unspoken and then the unspeakable. And then, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I know a few marriages like that. Uh, and And if we come back to, relationships get stronger I, we say in the last chapter i i would never have written this book with david had we not gone through what we went through because it took our relationship to a whole different level when when i was so mad at him that i that i well i mean part of what happened was the, the process through which we went through also had me see david as you know, another human being, not a God. Until then, I'd seen him as a God. He was my mentor. And I don't know that I would have agreed to write a book with him. Uh, if, if I don't think we would have been well served by that. I think we were able to argue a whole lot more and a whole lot more easily as we wrote the book and disagree with each other, even have a few pinches. And, and even afterward, you know, I'm like Ms. Control Freak and you know, that, that's, that's, that becomes an interesting issue for David. And the fact that he, that we have the relationship we have now is, is th that both allowed us to write a book and get even closer in the process yeah. would not have happened had we not had this conflict originally. Yeah, I can, I can, I can really see that. That writing a book together is putting you guys, or was putting you guys, in a very different environment from what you were used to. So you'd built exactly. up this relationship based upon other environments, other experiences, and exactly. now suddenly, a bit like I'm going to say, this own personal relationship I have with one of my friends, where yes. actually things are working great, but we've added in a new environment now in which. Yeah we're not used to playing in this environment. Mm -hmm. So yeah. now we need to learn a new skill. Nothing, none of this invalidates the many exactly. years of all that other stuff. And, and that's the maturity that we need to build up, isn't it? That, yes. That's all great. Yes. That's still there. But actually, we've now got this opportunity to see exactly. um, uh, there's this new opportunity for growth. The, the other thing, Carol, um, I, I wanted to... To just touch on that, I don't think we'll yeah. have time to to go deep into this one on this yeah. call, and maybe next time I'm in the US or next time you're in the UK, yeah. maybe we'll we'll do a follow up face to face, which would yes, be wonderful. That would be fabulous. Yeah. But you said you 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 had David on a pedestal; he was like your hero. Mm -hmm. And another type of relationship that that has come up in the book, and something I think about a lot, is that between a child and a parent. Mm -hmm. And that many times we, and, and we have to as kids, put our parents on pedestals and then, then we become adults and we have our own family. And that dynamic starts to change. And I really yeah. feel, and I've seen it with so many patients and friends that actually, and, and I've experienced it myself, that learning how to change that relationship, how to evolve it when you're no yeah. longer the child, yes. to now being an equal in many ways can be fraught with problems and challenges. I know with my own mother, I, you know, I'd have some very difficult conversations with her over the last few years. 
But on the other side of that, yeah, it's much better. And sure. I, I feel it. I, I think it was always good, but yes. actually, it, it's even better. Yeah. So yes. that, that putting people on pedestals and having to reframe yeah. that, I think people get a lot of wisdom in the book about that for sure. Yeah. Thanks. And I, and I think what's important also is, am I willing to get off the pedestal? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's very much true with parents and children. Are parents willing to let themselves be known? Or is there a fear that the um, child will no longer respect them as much, think as much of them? And uh, so, again, that's a risk. You know, in, in, and the kids do the same thing. Kids uh, withhold information for one approval. So we're back to the risk. Back to but the we're risk. also back to... Can we have a deeper connection? Yeah. We've just got under 10 minutes left. And one thing I think I thought we really should cover is given the times in which we have been living, mm-hmm. a lot of interaction has gone digital. Yes. And so I'm just wondering, how do these principles apply when you can't be face to face with someone, where you get all that nonverbal communication? You know, has it changed things? I guess the underlying principle is still the same but are you seeing that it's it's more challenging with digital communication to actually build these exceptional relationships than when we're actually face to face in real life well i'd say at one end email asynchronous non uh you know asynchronous written communication is fraught with problems Particular, you know, it was never intended to be a, a medium for connecting with people. It was always intended to be a way to get information efficiently back and forth. So when people say, you know, can, can I give feedback on email? I'm like, oh my god, that is a that that's a bad idea in general. And sometimes you have no choice. And then you have to, like, not just double down, triple down on everything we talk about in the book. Because now the words really are the only thing that matters. Yeah. Uh, Now, at the other end, of course, the very best thing is to be in person, where you do pick up, not just the, 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 the words and the tone and the new, but the nonverbal, the nonverbal nuance. Um, Somewhere in the middle is Zoom, better than email, certainly not as good as in person. I think part of what's happened, and we talk about this a lot in some of our other podcasts, is that in this last year, especially, now I'm not talking about technology taking over our lives, but especially since the pandemic, we've, and when we spend so much of our time this way on Zoom, then we've become, and it's so exhausting, that we've foregrounded task more and more and backgrounded relationship as a result. And so now you have to double down on what we talk about in terms of what you talk about and how you talk about it. Um, I don't know, David, if you have something you want to add to that, but those are my initial thoughts. I think that's, that's uh, very, very true. And, and again, we, to, in a sense, force ourselves to both share feelings when we Zoom and to share personal things that go on. But there's also an advantage, which we've discovered, 
because my kids are up in the state of Washington, uh, 1,500 miles away, uh, we used to talk on the phone. Now, now we Zoom, and it's actually better. So what is really better is when I'm able to travel up there and we can see them face-to-face. But the Zooming has allowed a more personal connection with my family than we had before. But again, we what we have to work at is to use that as an opportunity not just to pass on news, but to pass on what's going on. So for example, my grandson is in college and was um, uh, in a condition where he might've been contaminated with the virus, so is in isolation. Uh, That's terribly upsetting. He's uh, tested uh, negative, so he seems to be okay. But not only just sharing the fact that this went on when I talked to my daughter, but sharing our concern and our fear and our gratefulness for how well the university is doing in dealing with it was the important part about it. So again, it's what Carol's saying of doubling down on those parts that make for connection. Let me tell you what's important to me, what's going on for me. Let me tell you how I'm feeling. Let me tell you how I'm missing you. I think rather than, well, gee, we did this and we did that and so on. It's telling you about me personally and wanting to know about you personally. Yeah. It's and people think, and people think that takes a lot of time, you know, especially because, you know, we've fallen into this. Oh, we got to be really efficient. But actually, if I spend 30 seconds and, you know, when we started the call, you said, how are you? And I said, that's a complicated question. So if I spend 30 seconds and tell you that I'm overwhelmed because I'm moving to San Francisco and I am incredibly grateful that I have a brand new grandson who's three months old because it means I get to distribute my obsessive compulsive neuroses between trying to get this book known in the world and something else that I really, really care about. That that took less than 30 seconds, but yeah. you learned more about me. It was more connecting, perhaps. Yeah. And I heard Brené Brown recently say that on her Zoom calls with her team, I think, if I remember right, they all start off by saying two feelings. Yes. They just say two words, they go rounds, which I thought was great. And I I think I've heard, Carol, you say one of the CEOs you trained. Could you just tell? Because I think it's so helpful and people of that level are still finding time at the start of their call to focus on feelings before action. I think it's really powerful. Right. I mean, they, they start all, they start their every other week executive meetings with each person taking 90 seconds and they time it going around saying, if you really knew me. And so if you really knew me, you'd know that I'm moving, but, but they have to include at least three feeling words. And as a result, I'm feeling overwhelmed and wondering how the heck I ever agreed to do this. If you really knew me, you would know that, uh, I'm spinning so many plates that I lost all the notes for a talk I was supposed to give uh, <laughs> this afternoon. And now I'm having to figure out how to, I'm still giving the talk this afternoon. So I'm a little crazed. So, you know, and if we were, if this was our routine, then every two weeks they go around and they know what's happening yeah. for each other. Yeah, and, no, I lo- they ha- and they have to have three feeling words. I love that. And 
I, I think when when I have a team meeting with my own team around the podcast, I think we're going to try that. Actually, <laughs> um, I think. Well, I'm going to suggest that. I don't want to enforce it on there anyone, but I'm going to suggest it and see if people are open. <laughs> Uh, see that I do have someone in the team in the room at the moment looking at me. I'm not going to look at what 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 expression he's got on his. Sorry, David, far away. Uh, and when when you uh, suggest that, uh, I hope you will share why it's important to you. I will. I absolutely will. This is this is fantastic. Look, guys, I, I just want to say I think Carol, David, you've clearly already helped thousands of people transform the quality of their lives through what you've done in your professional work, um, the courses, the in-person courses that you have run, and I know you continue to run in, in various forms. I, I honestly feel that this book is, is a masterpiece that's going to help so many people all around the world transform their relationships, their health, their happiness. I want to acknowledge you for that and say thank you. Um, this thank podcast... You. Uh, Thank you. No, it's 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 been a pleasure to read it. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. I wish we had another two hours. There's so much more, but maybe we'll do that in person in California yeah. later in the there year if we can make that happen. But to finish off, this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our lives. And clearly, relationships are a mm -hmm. critical, if not the most crucial part of that. Mm -hmm. I always love to leave the listeners, the YouTube viewers, with some practical things. We may have already covered them, but just as a summary at the end, that so they can think about applying into their lives immediately. Of course, I'd recommend that everyone buys the book. But can you each maybe leave some of your favorite tips that people can think about applying immediately? Carol, would you like to start? Well, I think if there's one thing that I hope people really remember is the concept of choice, which is uh, you have a choice to take a risk and become better known. You have a choice to get more curious. You have a choice to give somebody feedback because you care about them enough that you want to tell them they're doing something that is not in their best interest. You have a choice about receiving a piece of feedback as a gift and a data with which you can make more choices. You have a choice about whether or not you wanna keep learning and growing. Uh, and the more you equip, you have a choice about how much you equip yourself with tools and competencies like these in order to make better and better choices. Yeah, brilliant. Mm -hmm. David, any closing thoughts? Yes. Um, lean into it. Uh, whatever it is, lean into it. And lean into it with excitement and the possibility of growth. And I think what I would add to that is see the value in the small steps. It's not just the big steps. You, you were talking about a friend of yours that you may want to have an important conversation with. But I'm struck with the fact that in my normal interactions, I can do a small thing that is a little more self-revealing, a little more personal, a little more caring, a little more emotional-based. It doesn't have to be this massive uh, self-revealing. And I think that if we do that on an ongoing basis, We'll find, our, at least I find myself when I do it, I feel fuller. Uh, the connection 
makes me more alive and I feel more connected. So that's what I would hope people would do. Yeah. The quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. And the tools that you teach are really, really going to help people do that. David Carroll, I've really enjoyed speaking to you both. I cannot wait till we get to meet each other face to face and do it again. But uh, stay well. And thanks for coming on the show. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, please do have a think about one thing that you can take away from this episode and apply into your own life. Inspiration and information is not enough on its own. You simply have to take action if you want something to change. And before we finish, I really want to let you know about Friday 5. It's my weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity. There's usually a practical tip for your health. Sometimes I might share a book, an article, a video that I found inspiring. I may share a recipe that I'm making or a quote that has caused me to stop and reflect. Basically, I share anything that I feel would be helpful and uplifting for you. And I get such wonderful feedback from Friday Five readers each week with so many of you telling me It's one of the highlights of your week and a wonderful thing to receive each Friday to get you ready for the weekend. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday five. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast and found the content useful, please do share it with your friends and family. You can do this on social media, Or alternatively, you could send them a link to this episode right now, along with a personal message. Please also consider leaving a review on whichever podcast platform you listen on. And of course, please do take a moment to support the sponsors. You can see the full list of discount codes at drchatterjee.com forward slash sponsors. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on. So you will get notified when my latest conversation comes out. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. You live more.